Scripture reading comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. Isaiah 6, 1 through 5. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face. face. With two he covered his feet, and with two he, covered, he, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. <clears throat> Back in December of 1998, Life magazine devoted an issue to the subject of God. I don't recall exactly what graphic was on the cover of that magazine, but I do recall that there was in huge font this one question, and it said, when you think of God, what do you see? You know, I can only imagine if a magazine like that came out some 21 years later, if it came out today with that title on the cover, how Americans would answer that question. Some see a God who looks and acts like Santa Claus, but who doesn't really care if we're naughty or nice, but winks at our sin, smiles at our iniquity, a God who's too loving and too kind to ever allow anyone to be lost in eternity. Some see a God who looks like a kindly grandfather, who accepts all his children just the way they are, never bothers to change any of them. He's a God who gives them everything that they want, never expects anything in return, a God who honors all religions and who sees one way, one path to him to be just as valid as any other. 
a God who is so accepting that he eventually is going to allow everybody into heaven. I'm here to say that all of those visions of God, all of those mental images of God, might be absolutely on target except for one itsy-bitsy, teeny-weeny fact, and that is the holiness of God. And the truth revealed about him in his word does not allow us to just visualize God any way that we choose to see him. J.B. Phillips' book entitled, Your God is Too Small, I won't recount the contents, I think the title says it all. If I were to ask you today, when you think about God, what do you see? How would you answer that question? God is a God of love. He's a God of mercy. He's a God of grace, a God of forgiveness, a God of hope. He's strong when we're weak, and he's a God of second chances when we fail. And if you heard me preach enough now, you know that I believe in every one of those wonderful qualities of God because they are clearly revealed in Scripture. He is a God of love. He is a God of mercy and grace and a God of second chances. But if we're not careful, we can look at God as just someone who's there to help make life easier for us, who lavishes his love and his mercy on us, who who gives us hope and who offers us second chances not once or twice but over and over again. But in the midst of all those wonderful virtues and attributes of God which are bestowed upon us on a daily basis because they are reaffirmed in God's word, there's one other quality of God that must never go unnoticed. My purpose in this lesson is to encourage every one of us here this morning that when we think about God, what we think of and remember first and foremost is the holiness of God. The backdrop for the text that Jason read a moment ago from Isaiah chapter 6 is found in 2 Kings chapter 15. You might want to turn there in your Bibles. We're actually beginning with verse 27. The information that follows verse 27 is absolutely critical to the understanding of this lesson this morning. You need to know that these were dark days for the kingdom of Judah. It's the 52nd year of King Azariah, referred to in our text as Uzziah. All of Judah is focused on the mighty king of Assyria named Tiglath-Pileser. They named their kids that in those days. He was moving quickly southward into Judah. He was gobbling up one city after another. Look at verse 29. It says that. Jerusalem was in chaos. They were anticipating the onslaught, the coming of the armies of Tiglath-Pileser. They knew that doom was at hand. And the people were frightened and they trembled before what was potentially a bloodthirsty assault. And they began to ask the question collectively and individually, who will there be that will protect us? Now we need to also know that Isaiah's work as God's prophet began in this same year. And sending Isaiah may have been a response to that national outcry for God to intervene and to save them from destruction. The point here is that God's message for Judah was not to panic, but to trust in God. So let me ask the question one more time this morning. What is your vision of God? We know what Isaiah's was. I'm asking you, what is yours? King Isaiah reigned in the land of Judah, the Bible says, for 52 years. You know, it's hard for us to imagine here in the United States of having someone who would be in a position of leadership for 52 years. We can tolerate one for only some four to eight years. Those five decades, though, the Bible says, were prosperous years economically, agriculturally, and militarily. God blessed Isaiah. 
year after year. Now, if you know the story of Isaiah, you also know that he had a pride problem. And that that pride would get to him and it ended his reign and he lived out the rest of his days with leprosy. But the nation of Judah enjoyed 52 years of prosperity. And then the Bible says Isaiah dies. How would you feel if your leader died after so many good years, 52 years of national prosperity, and now there is a looming Assyrian threat? And the same year Isaiah dies, it's clear record of scripture, Isaiah is called by God to be his prophet. But before he begins, he wants to show Isaiah something. It's basically God saying to Isaiah, you're not equipped, you're not trained, you're not ready to be my prophet until I'm able to show you something. Isaiah is one of those rare people who's allowed a peek into the, into the throne room of God. And the text says that he actually sees God on his throne, don't miss that, high and lifted up. The train of his robe, mind you, not even the whole robe, just the train of his robe fills that entire heavenly throne room. And then the scene intensifies. And the Bible says in our text, Isaiah saw above him two flaming creatures called seraphim. Each had six wings. Two wings they covered their faces. With two other wings they covered their feet. The other two wings are used to fly. One would shout to the other. Look at verse 3. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. What does this do to Isaiah, we have to ask. Isaiah's reaction is to cry out, woe is me. For I am lost, I am undone, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah's reaction is clearly indicated in Scripture. He's able to see something that shook him to the core of his being, and what he sees is God as he really is, the holy God, powerful and majestic. And the angels praise him with holy, holy, holy And the doorpost of the temple shook. Can you imagine what kind of earthquake there would have been if God himself had spoken? Remember now, the temple is filled with just the train of Jehovah God's robe. And his presence fills the whole earth with his glory. And please note that rather than saying that that God is most holy, the angels use the word in scripture, holy, holy, holy. That is, according to my understanding, the strongest superlative in the Hebrew language. And it's only used here in one other place in the Bible, or at least the Greek equivalent in Revelation chapter 4, verse 8, when John had a very similar vision. The phrase, the whole earth is full of his glory, is found 194 times in the Old Testament, and 35 of those times is right here in the book of Isaiah. This is why Peter would write over on the New Testament side of things, In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Yes, it's true that God is a God of love. But it's not love, love, love. God is a God of mercy, but it's not mercy, mercy, mercy. He is, however, holy Holy, holy. He is entirely and forevermore holy. And folks, I'm telling you, if we walk away from this text from Isaiah with a lesser understanding of the holiness of God, then we've missed the whole point. He wants to bless the lives of his children. 
but he also wants us to feel, along with the awareness of those blessings, a deep responsibility toward him to live and to respect him as a holy God, not just a way to fill our times during our planet here on earth, not just a way to fill an hour or two on Sunday morning. I'm telling you, when you read the Bible, it seems to me that there are other times of new beginnings when God would take dramatic steps to be able to communicate to his people, I am a holy God and I want you to honor me as holy. Let's mention those quickly and then the lesson will be yours. In those times of new beginnings that we find in scripture, what does God want his people to understand? The first one I want to mention is found in Leviticus chapter 10. Most of you as Bible students are familiar with what transpires there in the very first three verses. Leviticus chapter 10. This was a time when there was a new beginning. This time in human history, it is a new priesthood. In Leviticus chapters 8 and 9, if you back up a couple of chapters, you read about the beginnings of that new priesthood. The new priesthood would come from Aaron's tribe of Levi. This priesthood would serve as a mediator between God and man. The priests, their responsibilities were to to act as a go-between between man and God. And Aaron would be given special robes to wear, indicating his position as the high priest. At the end of chapter 9, you read how Aaron was offered different kinds of offerings to the Lord. And scripture tells us that he offered those offerings, and we simply must note this as we read through the text, that he offered those offerings on behalf of the people as the Lord had commanded. Look at verse 10. As the Lord had commanded, or according to the rule, verse 16, or as Moses commanded according to verse 21, it's important to note that Aaron was so very careful to offer the people's sacrifices just and only just as the Lord had ordered that they be offered. And then the Bible record says that after Moses and Aaron came up out of the tent of meetings, fire came from the Lord, and it consumed the burnt offering. Now here's what that means. The Lord was pleased with the offering that had been presented on behalf of the people. And so his consumption of that offering by fire that came from heaven was indicative of his, of his being pleased and his acceptance of that sacrifice. But then we have to turn the page. And you turn to chapter 10, and you read about the two sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, who took their censers, they put fire in them, they added incense, and I don't know exactly how all this transpired, but the Bible says they offered to the Lord a strange fire. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? Turn a phrase, a strange fire. As I researched that, the best equivalent phrase that I could find was they offered irreverent fire. Whatever it was, it clearly was not what God had authorized. Now, fire that only moments before had indicated God's approval of the sacrifice. Again, fire comes down from heaven, but now it comes down and it consumes them. Nadab and Abihu die on the spot. They are consumed by the fire that came from heaven. Then look at verse 3. Moses says to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. That just means that Aaron did not speak 
a word. There was no appropriate response to what Moses had just said. And for a long time we have said that this is one of those classic accounts that teaches us that we ought to do right things in right ways and only that which is divinely authorized. And while I believe all of that is absolutely an important takeaway from this passage, while all of that is certainly true, I don't believe that it is really the essence of the lesson that Moses was speaking to Aaron that day. Remember, the priesthood at this juncture in history is brand new. Here are two sons of Aaron who seem to be taking their sacrifices and their service to God far too lightly. And the message that God is trying to get across to Aaron and to all the priesthood and to all the Israelite people was that he is a God who demands to be taken seriously. And he is to be honored as a holy God. Here's a second one in the Old Testament, 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapters 5 and 6. Now there's a new king. This is a king that the Bible says has been fashioned after the heart of God. We know his name, of course, is David. David has reigned over Judah for some seven and a half years. But now in chapter 5... He's made to be the full king over all of Israel, and he will reign in Jerusalem for 33 more years. But at this point, the reign of David, we need to appreciate, is a brand new reign. He's just been voted into office, so to speak. And his first official act as king is found in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Take a look at it. That's where David gathers 30,000 chosen men of Israel to go with him to bring back to Jerusalem the ark of the Lord that has been staying in the house of Abinadab. First thing I want to do as king is to make sure that the ark of God is brought back to Jerusalem. Abinadab wants to send along with the ark or the retrieval of the ark his two sons, Uzzah and Ohio. And that's not Ohio, that's Ohio, A-H-I-O. Can you imagine? We're going to make sure it gets back. So we're going to send 30,000 men to accompany it. And Abinadab says, for good measure, I'm going to send my two boys as well. They place the ark on a brand new ox cart, which, please note, by the way, is not the way the ark was authorized to be moved. It was to be carried with poles that were slid through the rings on the sides of the ark. The poles were to rest on the shoulders of the Levites so that no human being would touch the Ark of the Covenant as the law of Moses had clearly commanded. David was a pragmatist. As king, he was by job description a decision maker. It's like saying, I've heard this saying my whole life, it doesn't matter what you do, do something even if it's wrong. By the way, that's horrible advice. Because while Uzzah and Ahio were leading the Ark down the hill from Abinadab's house, when the ark comes to Nacon's threshing floor, the Bible says the oxen stumble and Uzzah does what any one of us might have done. He reached up and he took hold of the ark to steady it. It then says in 2 Samuel 6 and verse 7, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah and God struck him down there because of his error and he died there beside the ark of God. Please do not miss the full picture. Because while they are moving the ark, it says in verse 5 that David and his 30,000 men had been over to the side celebrating and having a grand old time. They're anticipating getting the ark back to Jerusalem successfully and safely. So they're already having a celebration party. But the celebration comes to an abrupt end when Uzzah dies. 
Have you noticed that a sudden death has a way of killing the mood of a party? And that's exactly what happened here. And then the Bible says that David gets angry. And let's admit it. We would probably be a little angry at this point as well. Because after all, in a sense, Uzzah is not a bad guy in this story. He's only doing what any one of us probably would have done, try to help steady the ark before it pitches over. After all, he may not know a whole lot about Old Testament protocol, but he knows that the ark, much like our American flag, we don't want it to touch the ground. So he reaches up to steady it. So we have to ask, what was God communicating? Why did he do that? What was he telling his people then and us today about why Uzzah had to die that day. Surely the ark of the Lord had been mishandled before. When the Philistines captured the ark back in 1 Samuel chapters 4 and 5, they surely must have treated the ark profanely. When the ark was in the temple of Dagon for crying out loud, I'm pretty sure they touched it improperly. But it wasn't until disaster struck the Philistines that they sent it back on a brand new cart here in chapter 6. Then there were the men of Beth Shemesh that God struck dead because they dared to look into the ark of the Lord, which they were not authorized to do. There was an object lesson for you. And he struck 70 men dead, 70 men dead on that occasion. And the people lamented because the Lord had struck the people with such a great slaughter. And you can read about that in 1 Samuel chapter 6 and verse 19. But others had, had botched the moving of the ark as well. So I repeat the question, what was God saying to David and to all the Israelite people by striking Uzzah dead? Remember, this is a new reign of David in Jerusalem and a fresh beginning for all of Israel. And it's as though God is slamming his hand down and saying, I am a holy God, and I will be honored as holy. That brings us finally to the New Testament and to the book of Acts. Turn, if you will, for a moment to Acts chapter 5. In chapter 4 and 5, it is, in fact, the church has just been established back in Acts chapter 2, so it's brand new. And it is now, by the time you get to chapters 4 and 5, exploding. I mean exploding with daily growth. And the Christians are, are sharing with one another so that no one has need. Many of those apparently who had heard the gospel for the first time on the day of Pentecost back in Acts chapter 2 decided to stay there. They wanted to, 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 to stay with their newfound brothers and sisters. And so some of them didn't go back home. Well, guess what? The money only lasts for a while. So they were taking things out of their own pockets and selling their own property to take care of their new brothers and sisters in the Lord. At the end of chapter 4, you read about a man whose name is Joseph, who the apostles gave the nickname Barnabas to, which means son of encouragement. And, and, and Barnabas, along with others, had sold pieces of property and taken the money and laid it at the apostles' feet so that it could be distributed to anyone who had need. And the apostles are so impressed with the people's generosity and with their selflessness. And, and, and everybody in that brand new church is just excited about the opportunity to be able to help one another out. And that leads us into the next story in the text. Beginning in chapter 5, you read the grim account of Ananias and Sapphira. Could it be that this couple must have heard about what Barnabas and some of his friends had done? And they wanted to be acknowledged and get their names in the church bulletin as well. 
The account says that they also sold a piece of land and they agreed together between the two of them, husband and wife, that we're going to keep back half of what we sold that property for. Now, there's nothing wrong with doing that. It was theirs to do with as they pleased. They could have kept all the proceeds of the sale of that property if that's what they wanted to do. But the sin was in pretending to give all the money that they sold the land for to the apostles for the benevolence fund, if you know what I mean. And the Bible says when Ananias took only half the money to the apostles and dropped it down in the contribution basket, Peter said, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and make you keep some of the money from the sale of the property? You see, Ananias and Sapphira had in their minds a good plan. What they had not planned on is dealing with men who knew their hearts. And the Bible says that as soon as Ananias heard those words from Peter, he dropped dead at Peter's feet. Just three hours later, when his wife Sapphira came in, not knowing what had happened to her husband, Peter asked her, now was this the amount that you sold the land for? And when she said it was, Peter asked her, why did the two of you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? The men who buried your husband are by the door, and they will carry you out as well. And the Bible said that at once she fell at Peter's feet and died and was buried alongside her husband. When you read this account, it's obviously a lesson about the seriousness of lying. I mean, you can come away from this account and you say, my major takeaway is lying is wrong. And there are consequences, there are repercussions for lying. But that, I am convinced, is not the primary thrust of this lesson. Everyone has lied at one point or another in his or her life. And if we have, then why are we still living? If lying deserves capital punishment like it did with this couple, then, then why, are we still, why do we still have breath in our lungs and, and blood flowing in our veins? Remember, this is a new beginning for the church of the Lord. There's some things that are being, some protocols and some, some values that are being established and set in concrete in the early part of the, of the birth and, and the life of the church. And so what is the primary takeaway from this example in Acts 5? I think God is saying to the new church that he is a God who insists on, be take, on being taken seriously. And it did work. Look at Acts 5 verse 11. The Bible says, great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. So God is saying to this young church where everything is new and fresh, don't ever forget I am holy. This morning we have come here to this place to worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We have sung songs like, Holy, 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 and we exalt thee. Let me ask you this question as we end this lesson. Have you taken God seriously? Or is this morning just another Sunday morning? Did you approach this day in prayer before you went to bed last night? Did you spend some time in his word this week? Or even maybe this morning preparing your mind to worship a holy and powerful and majestic God? Or did you just rush in here at the last minute because that's what you always do and you didn't get settled in until halfway through the opening prayer? Do you understand what we've done here this morning? 
We have prayed to the sovereign God who is the creator of this universe and he brought everything that we can see into existence by the power of his spoken word. We've sung praises to the God who fills his throne room with the hem of his garment. We've communed with a God who isn't just holy, folks. He is holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of his glory. And once we get a taste of that, our lives will never be the same. And once we understand that and come to grasp that fully, what we do here in worship will never be the same. Is that the God that we came here to worship this morning? A holy God. Is that the God that you've dared to approach? Is that your attitude? Or is your attitude, he's lucky that I'm even here? Can we all, in all honesty, believe that we can worship this God without really giving any, any thought to, to, to his majestic nature? Remember, this is, this is holy ground. The Lord is with us in this assembly this morning, and there are angels all around. I'm preaching this morning so that you and I are better able to see God as he really is in his divine and majestic form. A loving and merciful God, yes, but also a God who must, who must be revered as holy. What makes his love a pure love? What makes his grace a righteous grace? What makes his forgiveness everything that we need is the fact that he is holy. Maybe someone here this morning feels the need to repent because... Your life and your example has not been holy. And you'd like the prayers of the church and to ask the forgiveness of God. Or maybe someone else here this morning would like to confess your faith in Christ, to turn away from the unholy sin in your life, and it may be made pure and clean in the waters of baptism because that's where you contact the blood of Jesus Christ. And my assurance to you this morning is assurance born of Scripture That God will give you his Holy Spirit to dwell in you and you will become holy and sanctified. That means set apart for his service. And if you have either of those needs this morning, please let us know how that we can serve you while we stand and while we sing.